This is Dom Bettinelli, the CEO of SQPN, with a brief but very important message. For more than a decade, SQPN has produced the Catholic faith and pop culture podcasts that you love. We're a nonprofit organization, so it's only your generosity that lets us carry out our mission. We haven't run a fundraiser in two years, and that's why we need to ask for your help right now. Please make a pledge of whatever amount you can afford to help us continue providing your favorite podcasts, as well as exciting new ones we have planned. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. Thank you for your generosity. May we hear from you today? You're listening to Episode 20 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries, both natural and supernatural, from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. And in this episode, we're talking about the lost planet Vulcan. Not the one you might be thinking. And uh, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. As always, folks, remember to like Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Facebook, where we have a Facebook page to share and retweet the episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Leave us comments, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app or YouTube, where if you subscribe, make sure to hit the bell so you also get notifications. Uh, write a review on iTunes if you can. That's a, that's a great help. If you give us a nice five-star review, that helps the algorithms uh, know to start showing it to more people, and they'll subscribe perhaps. But, all, but above all, our goal is to have you share the podcast with your friends to help us grow our community of listeners to reach more people with these uh, great podcasts. And uh, we have once a, one final time uh, for this giving campaign, one final request of you, Jimmy, can, can you give that to the folks? Absolutely. Um, we really need your support. Um, I'm just going to be frank with you. Uh, we're not where we need to be in terms of our finances. We created this podcast and a number of others as a step of faith trusting that, you know, as people became familiar with the material we were presenting, they would see the value in it and uh, respond by helping support it. And people have been doing that, but not enough. And so if we're going to keep making these podcasts, we do need to hear from you. Please go to sqpn.com slash give, G-I-V-E. That's sqpn.com slash give and become a supporter either by making a one-time donation or by becoming one of our regular Patreon supporters. Uh, we have some wonderful things we'd like to send you as thank yous that are based on the program and topics we've talked about before. You can learn about all those there. Also, uh, as we mentioned, you know, we've just been celebrating Christmas, which is the uh, anniversary of God's greatest gift to mankind. So we'd really appreciate if you reciprocate by using your generosity to support this podcast, which is one that, as part of SQPN's mission, is trying to advance the gospel by helping people think about things from in our world as part of God's creation, uh, based on the twin perspectives of faith and reason. Also, uh, we're right up to the end of the year now, which means that donations you make this year can uh, help you with your taxes next year. You can get a nice tax write-off from those. So please do go to sqpn.com slash give and uh, support us now. And thank you so much for your generosity. And since we're still in the Christmas season, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, so today's episode, is, uh, as I mentioned at the top, our topic is the Lost Planet Vulcan. Uh, 
So everyone knows about the or presumably the folks who listen to this podcast know about the planet Vulcan that Mr. Spock is from in Star Trek. But we're not talking about that planet Vulcan. Um, and Vulcan has no moon except when it does. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, astronomers have recently found a planet that kind of sort of corresponds to it in the 40 Eridina A system. That's not the Vulcan we're talking about either. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about our universe, not the Star Trek universe, or in fact, our solar system and the planet Vulcan, which was discovered and then lost and not the one from the Kelvin timeline in Star Trek either. So, Jimmy, what what Vulcan are we talking about here? Yeah. So the claim is that there is another planet in our solar system between Mercury and the sun, which astronomers named Vulcan and discovered back in the 1800s. That's the claim. Interesting. How about that? Got a got a missing planet. <laughs> we can't normally see it because it's uh, too close to the sun. The sun's glare prevents us from seeing it. But uh, astronomers said, nope, we found it. And of course, the counterclaim is? There is no such planet. <laughs> okay. So it's, we've got a nice binary uh, choice here in this mystery. So- what is what is it we know? What what do we what is the the background of this this big mystery? Well, so we need to start by talking about the way planets orbit the sun. Um, Isaac Newton, the most famous figure in the history of science, uh, developed uh, equations for what we now call Newtonian physics. You know, Isaac Newton, so Newtonian physics. Um, that talk about, among other things, the mass and momentum and gravity and how they how they all interrelate. And you could use uh, his equations to predict the motions of various objects, everything ranging from uh, the flight of cannonballs once they come out of the chute of a cannon uh, to the the motions of the planets in the heavens. In fact, that was Einstein's this is kind of the first unified theory in physics. Uh, people before uh, Newton had said, like Aristotle had said, what we see, the reason we see things falling down here on Earth is because they're seeking their natural place. But the things that don't fall down up in the sky that just move around in the sky, like the planets and the stars, those are obeying different laws. And it was Newton who realized it, the, the, the gravity we see operating in the sky and the gravity we see operating here on Earth are the same. They're the same thing. It's one phenomenon that governs both of these. And so you could use Newton's equations both to describe falling objects here on Earth and to describe the motions of the planets in the heavens. So scientists, before computers... This is the impressive thing. Mm. They were doing all of this calculation by hand, said, OK, let's take the uh, let's take our observations from astronomy and Newton's equations and go through each one of the planets in the solar system and construct a mathematical model of of how they work so we can predict where they were and where they're going to be based on Newton's equations. And that's a very complex thing, in part because it's not just an individual, it's not just the sun that is gravitationally controlling each individual planet. 
they all are tugging on each other gravitationally because they all have mass. And so that means that when, say, Earth is going around the sun, yes, the sun is tugging on Earth, but so are all of the other planets, including the big one, Jupiter. And that causes Earth's orbit, those gravitational tugs from the different planets, which are themselves moving, causes the Earth's orbit to shift slightly every time it goes around the sun. That shifting of the Earth's orbit is called the precession of its orbit as the other planets are tugging on it. And um, if there were no other objects in the universe, just us and the sun, we'd go around it the same way. But these little gravitational tugs we get cause the Earth's orbit to precess and shift a little bit from one orbit to another. Well, that happens to all of the planets. And so as astronomy developed and as we got better measurement, better telescopes and better measurements of where the planets are and how they're orbiting, some mysteries emerged. It turned out that Uranus's orbit, Uranus was a new planet. It was not known in classical antiquity. Um, it was discovered by an English astronomer named Herschel. And for a while, they wanted to call it planet Herschel. Mm. Um, but uh, it was eventually named uh, Uranus. And something was wrong with its orbit. It, it, it had eccentricities in its orbit that couldn't be explained by the sun and the other planets. And so a guy in France in the um, in uh, 1846, a French astronomer named Urbain Le Verrier said, guess what? We could explain the eccentricities in Uranus's orbit if there's another undiscovered planet out there. And here's where it would be. Mm. And he predicted where in the sky you would look to find the next planet. And he was right. And we call that planet today Neptune. Although for a while, he was kind of advocating the idea it should be called Le Verrier. <laughs> and he revived the idea of calling Uranus Herschel. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but um, but no, we got Uranus and Neptune. Um and so he had predicted it. Now, it later turned out we had already seen um, both Uranus and Neptune. Scientists had seen them before. In fact, Galileo had seen Neptune, but he didn't know what he was looking at mm. through his telescope. He thought it was a fixed star, not a planet. And so we looked back in the records and said, oh, we've seen these before. We just didn't know what they were. Um, well, so that's how we found Neptune. And and. When he calculated where Neptune should be, Le Verrier was kind of taking a break from something he had previously been interested in, interested in, which was the orbit of Mercury, because Mercury has too much precession in its orbit uh, from what you would expect based on the sun and the other planets. And so he after he after he after he successfully predicted Neptune, he said. You know, we could explain the excess precession of Mercury if there's another planet in there between Mercury and the sun that we normally can't see because of the sun's glare. He also hmm. said it could be uh, some asteroids uh, because by this point they had started to find asteroids. So it could be some asteroids or it could be a planet. 
And so, um, so he proposed that in um, 1859, and he suggested that this there was this other planet in there. He called it Vulcan, after the the god of the forge and thus of fire, um, because it was so close to the sun. And it, it this had a lot of plausibility. I mean, he had already found, he predicted Neptune, and he was right about that. Mm. So a lot of scientists said, hey, you know, we could have a big career-boosting discovery here, too, with, <laughs> with, with Vulcan, if we're the first ones to spot it. And so they, and they risked their retinas looking through telescopes at the sun. <sighs> um, <laughs> and they, they were highly motivated. And, um, and in 1859, there was a French doctor named uh, Edmund Lescarbeau who thought he found it. On March 26th, he was watching. He, he was a physician, but he also had like a telescope out and in this stone barn behind his, his surgery. And so he'd see patients. And then in the breaks between patients, he'd go do astronomy because that's what was fun for him. And so he was like in a break between patients or something. He's out. He's watching the sun through his telescope. He's risking his retinas. And he sees this little dot that's just crossed over into the sun, you know, in, in between the sun and the earth. And it's not moving like a black hole. I mean, like it's not moving like a sunspot. It's certainly not moving like a black hole, <laughs> but it's not moving like a sunspot. And it's also he knows it's not mercury. Because so, Mercury's elsewhere, and so um, he he thinks he's found uh, something of note, and and then he comes out a little bit later and sights it again in another part of the sun. It's moved, and he's able to calculate how long it was in front of the sun and what speed it was moving and things like that. And um, and he sends that information to Le Verrier, and Le Verrier looks at the information and says, "Yes, this is a valid sighting." Um, this is Vulcan, and he's even able to calculate the orbit of Vulcan around the sun. He concludes that it would have been 19 days and 17 hours, so just under 20 days for its orbit. It would have been around halfway between Mercury and the sun. And so on January 2nd of 1860, Le Verrier goes to the Academy of Sciences in Paris and says, we found the new planet. Yay! Isn't that exciting? <laughs> <laughs> except well, except well no we're not to the except part oh, yet okay. because the the data keeps rolling in hmm. um just like a, after neptune was found astronomers went back in the records and said hey we've got previous sightings of neptune we just didn't know it um they did the same thing for vulcan and they found previous sightings of vulcan in the records between 1818 and 1837 so they had all these additional previous sightings where people were seeing stuff around the sun. They said, okay, this is Vulcan too. We just didn't know it. Um, in addition, other people start sighting Vulcan too. So in 1860, after he's announced it, you have astronomers in London sight Vulcan. You have astronomers in America sight London. Uh, it, um, astronomers in America sight Vulcan. Uh, they may have sighted London, too, but only by <laughs> steamship at that point. Um, in 1862, astronomers <clears throat> in Manchester, England, sight Vulcan. In 1865, an astronomer in Turkey does. And in 1878, 
two sightings by different teams in America during that year's eclipse saw Vulcan. And that's particularly significant because during an eclipse, you're not looking. It's, it's the one time you can kind of look at objects around the sun without the glare. Otherwise, they have to cross in front of the sun or transit the sun. But if during an eclipse, when the moon is blocking the sun's light, the glare is reduced so that you can see objects around it. And so you had these two teams in 1878 say, yeah, we can see uh, Vulcan right there next to the sun during the eclipse. So things for Vulcan were looking really good. Okay, so <clears throat> this is where we begin. Um, you, so we always say we, we look at things from a faith and reason perspective. The, the, but is there a faith perspective on this? Yeah, not so much. We found lots of planets. The discovery of a new planet doesn't really have significance from a faith perspective. It's just more of God's creation to yeah. understand and appreciate if it's there. Yeah. The Galileo Copernicus stuff is well in the past. Yeah. Uh, so so let's we continue on with the reason perspective. What what happens because today no one talks about a planet Vulcan. So what happened to Vulcan? Well, this it, beginning with the 1878 sightings, things started to unravel. Now, a lot of people had not been convinced of Vulcan up to this point, despite these sightings. Um, but the when the different teams from 1878 compared their corrected numbers for where they sighted it and when they sighted it, they didn't match. Mm. And so it it looked like we've got a problem in the data here. So uh, a logical thing to do was was to continue to study, to look for Vulcan during eclipses, because watching for transits, it can be problematic because of sunspots. You know, um, it, it, you sometimes get sunspots that look like a planet transiting, and so they're less reliable. But it can't be a sunspot if you're seeing it during the eclipse. Um, it can, it could be maybe a reflection of something, uh, you know, in the optical apparatus that you're looking at. If the light is bouncing, so it could be a lens flare. You know, J.J. Okay. Abrams could be responsible for Vulcan. <laughs> um, Apparently, he is. <laughs> yeah, um, but it could, it could also be, it could be a, a fixed star in the background that you're misidentifying. It could be something else, but that's your one of your best chances to sight a planet that close to the sun is during an eclipse. And so uh, they started looking during eclipses. So in 1883, they have an eclipse. They do not sight Vulcan. In 1887, they have an eclipse, and they do not sight Vulcan. They do not sight Vulcan at eclipses in 1889, in 1900, in 1901, in 1905, and in 1906. Mm. So things are now starting to look really bad for Vulcan, despite the fact that, um, that they had these earlier sightings. There's now a lot of doubt being cast on them. Maybe you were seeing sunspots. Maybe it was a lens flare. Maybe it was a fixed star you misidentified. Um, so things and we we've been looking repeatedly and not getting confirmation. So things are looking bad. But the thing is, we don't have an alternative explanation for why Mercury's orbit is precessing as much as it is something is tugging on Mercury's orbit and causing that to happen. Hmm. And if it's not Vulcan, what is it? So that was the big question. Okay. And then how do, so 
How does this get explained then? Well, in 1905, Albert Einstein, who at the time was a patent clerk uh, in Switzerland, had what was called his miraculous year. He published a series of papers uh, dealing with a variety of phenomena, including his first theory of his first version of the theory of uh, relativity, what we now call special relativity. It deals with um, the interactions of subatomic particles and so forth, but it doesn't include gravity. That was kind of controversial for people in the day. And so he didn't win a Nobel Prize for that, but he did later get a Nobel Prize for uh, for one of his miraculous year papers from 1905. He still, though, kept working, obviously, on physics problems because it was what interested him. And in 1915, he proposed a new version of his theory of relativity called general relativity. And general relativity does incorporate gravity. And when he ran the equations for general relativity over the orbit of Mercury, it explained the precession. Mm. And he knew what was causing, what was tugging on Mercury that caused the precession. It was the sun itself. Because in, uh, in what we now call Einsteinian physics, unlike Newtonian physics, we realize that um, it appears, at least according to all the experimental results we've got, that objects with mass distort the space-time in which they reside. So if you have a really massive object like the sun, it creates what we call a gravity well. That dis- not, it, It's not just heavy and attracts other objects, it actually bends the space and time around it. And so that um, uh, that gravity well of the sun is what's responsible for Mercury's precessing orbit. Mercury is so close to the sun, it's so deep in the gravity well, that it orbits in a different manner than planets that are farther out that are not as deep in the gravity well. And so that's why... The, uh, the orbit of Mercury processes. It's not that there's another planet or a bunch of asteroids in there. It's just the shape of space has been distorted by the, the mass of the sun, and that's hmm. what's doing it. So that was Einstein, and he said when he realized this, he like got heart palpitations. He was so excited. And he was normally a guy who was pretty you know cool. He was kind of cool as a cucumber guy, but he got really excited when he realized that uh, this explained this mystery about why Mercury moves the way it does. But having an explanation doesn't prove that that explanation is right. I mean, Le Verrier had produced a very plausible explanation for what was causing Mercury's orbit to, to be weird, and he wasn't right. So why should we believe Einstein's explanation, which is even weirder than Le Verrier's? Well, um... One of the other predictions that Einstein made was that not only will is the sun so massive that it will affect the orbit of Mercury, it'll also, because of how close it is to the sun, it'll also affect light that is passing by the sun. It will bend the trajectories of the light rays passing by the sun. And that means it will cause stars that are near the sun or being seen when they're near the sun to look like they're in a slightly different part of the sky 
than what they look like at other times of the year. So let's suppose you're looking at a, a famous star. Let's say it's Vega. Um, you're looking at Vega when the Earth is between Vega and the Sun. So Vega's on the other side of the Sun, uh, is on the other side of the Earth from the Sun. At that time of year, you'll be able to measure the distance between Vega and the surrounding stars, and you'll get one set of numbers. It looks like it's this far away from this star. It looks like it's this far away from that star, and so on. But then wait six months. So now the Earth is on the other side of its orbit. The sun is between Earth and Vega. The sun is so massive that it's going to bend the light coming from Vega slightly and by tugging on that light, it's going to make Vega looks like it shifted its position relative to those other stars you measured it around. So you're going to get different measurements. It's going to look like it's this other distance from this one star and this other distance from another star. And so um, so you could use the bending of light around the sun to test whether Einstein's general theory of relativity is true. So mm. what you need to do is start looking at eclipses again. And that's what they did. So he proposed this in 1915. And in 1918, the U.S. Naval Observatory got a $3,500 grant from Congress, which was a lot of money then. Um, uh, they got this $3,500 grant from Congress to go view an eclipse that was occurring that year that was going to, they were going to cite it from uh, Baker, Oregon. So you had these two scientific teams, they go, they use the brand new railroads, they get up there, and um, the sun doesn't show hmm. because of the fact that in Oregon, they frequently have lots of <laughs> cloud cover. Right. <laughs> and so on the day of the eclipse, cloud cover city, Oregon, and no sun. So they miss out on the chance to confirm or falsify the theory of relativity. So big disappointment. <clears throat> Fortunately, next year, 1919, there is another eclipse that's going to be occurring. And uh, two teams of British astronomers under under the direction of Sir Arthur Eddington um, split up. One of them goes to uh, Principe Island off the coast of West Africa, and another goes to Brazil. And they are really afraid there's going to be rain or something like that. You know, like in Brazil, it can rain daily. Right. And they're afraid it's going to happen during the time of the eclipse. But no, it doesn't. They get photos. And when they analyze the photos, guess what? Light bends around the sun the way Einstein predicted. General relativity receives confirmation as an explanation for the phenomena we see, including the precession of the orbit of Mercury. So that means uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity gets accepted. It subsequently has had many other confirmations, but it gets accepted in the community. Einstein is catapulted to a new level of fame, even more than he had before. And the planet Vulcan is doomed, and not because <laughs> of red matter. Um, so that kind of brought an end to the uh, scientific speculations about Vulcan. Almost. Hmm. But in fact, not entirely. 
you may remember that Leverrier said that the explanation now obviously there are people t- today who are skeptical of of general relativity and that's fine that's a topic for another day but even among people who accept it you may remember Leverrier also proposed it, instead of a planet it could be asteroids that are in there smaller asteroids that'd be harder to see they, they could be so small we wouldn't even see them as sunspots you know couldn't pick them up on the telescopes at the time and um and there have been some scientists who have proposed that there are some asteroids in there. Now, if they accept general relativity, they're going to say they're not what's causing Mercury to process the way it is. That's the the sun. But they have said maybe there's some asteroids in there and they're called volcanoids. That's the name for these proposed asteroids. Um, so it may be that a piece of Leverrier's theory or a version of Leverrier's theory is actually true. If, if these volcanoid asteroids turn out to be real. And uh, some scientists have said they've seen them. Uh, a, an American astronomer named Henry Corton, back in 1976, was looking, he and his team were looking at objects, uh, at photographs of, an, of the 1970 eclipse of the sun. And they said, you know, even when we account for lens flares and things like that, it looks like we've got at least seven objects orbiting the sun that are otherwise unaccounted for, but that seem to be real in these photographs, not image artifacts. And so he thought these were volcanoid asteroids. Now, subsequent astronomers have not confirmed, been able to confirm that. Um, and so these days, volcanoid asteroids are considered possible but unconfirmed that we don't have good evidence for them. But it could still turn out that this piece of Leverrier's theory could be true, and there are interesting bodies to study between Mercury and the Sun. Isn't there a new uh, NASA probe in orbit uh, that is examining the Sun right now? Yeah, yeah, there are a couple, and we haven't they haven't turned up any volcanoids. But it's possible that given the, you know, they've just started their mission and they've got these wonderful modern instruments that they could... Pick we up could things. find something someday. That's yeah, yeah. a nice idea. So what's the bottom line then on uh, on the lost planet Vulcan? Bottom line is Vulcan is was a really cool idea. And at first it seemed very plausible, both theoretically and in terms of observation. But ultimately, as science progressed, it was undone um, that uh, the observations, uh, observational evidence ceased and we got the uh, improved understanding of physics that undermined the theoretical basis for the planet. Okay. So if people want to learn more about the the Lost Planet Vulcan, what what are some further resources? I uh, have a link in the show notes to Wikipedia's article on Planet Vulcan. Uh, Obviously, you have to go to the right article or you're going to be reading about Mr. Spock. (laughs) Um, So I've got the link for you. Also, I have a link to a really nice book. It's by Thomas Levinson. It's called The Hunt for Vulcan. And... How Albert Einstein destroyed a planet, discovered relativity, and deciphered the universe. It's, <laughs> I love that. Albert Einstein, destroyer of worlds. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, so that uh, book is very is fascinating. It, it's, it covers not just a Vulcan itself, but also like the finding of, Ur- of Uranus and Neptune and everything connected with this. It's really a fun read. Uh, tells all the interesting stories about the drama with the different teams of astronomers looking at eclipses and stuff, and uh, Leverrier's kind of eccentric, arrogant personality, you know. Um, 
Also, there is a, a link I have to a YouTube video by a guy I sometimes watch who does these simulations of planetary orbits. He's got a program that lets him drop in and change the parameters of planetary orbits to to highlight and show you different things about them. And so the video is called How Mercury Fooled Us into Believing There Was Planet Vulcan. And I've got the link to it in the show notes. And, it, you know, it's it's nice to talk about this in an audio podcast format, but it really adds a new layer if you can see uh, him exaggerating Mercury's orbit as a way to show you what precession looks like and how it gets affected by different things. So check out the video, How Mercury Fooled Us into Believing There Was Planet Vulcan. Awesome. That's a, that's, that'll be great. So uh, now we turn to uh, your mysterious feedback, uh, listeners sending in the feedback, either comments on uh, social media or emails. And in this one, we have uh, a comment from Facebook from Ramey, uh commenting on the Lost Tribes of Israel uh, episode we did. Uh, Ramey says, this was great. How does Jimmy know so much? Well, uh, Ramey, let me just jump in and say, this is one of those mysteries. So, but, but, but Jimmy, how, how do you know so much? I'm just curious. And so I, uh, I'm always reading and studying about something. Awesome. Yes. Uh, and uh, Guy, also commenting on Facebook, says uh, the, the Lost Tribes episode makes me want to do a 23andMe test now. Thank you and great show. Yeah, and uh, it's it's great to get uh, information genetically about one's heritage. And uh, unfortunately, we don't yet have the tools necessary to say, are you a member of a lost tribe or not? Although if you do have Jewish heritage, that can be uh, picked up uh, genetically in such tests. I recently uh, saw a video uh, by uh, Mayim Bialik, who plays uh, uh, Amy. Amy Farrah Fowler on yep. Amy Farrah Fowler on the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, um, she uh, happens to be Jewish, and according to her uh, recent DNA test, she's like ninety eight percent. I think she said Ashkenazi Jew, <laughs> so she is one of the most Jewish people around. Um, <laughs> and uh, genetically speaking, yep. And so, uh, so yeah, it's uh, interesting, but also be careful because there are some privacy concerns uh, regarding the use of that data. Yes. Um, actually, a great YouTube video is from uh, Smarter Every Day YouTube channel, who mm -hmm. did a, a, a examination of how 23andMe handles DNA tests and talks to independent genetic uh, experts to talk about that. So that, that might be something you want to check out. Go to I love his channel. It, it makes me smarter when I when I uh, watch his videos. So um, then Sarah on Facebook says, so my brain went to DNA when doing a discussion board post for class about St. Cyril of Alexandria and the dual nature of Jesus. If Jesus was without a human father, he would have the exact same DNA as Mary. So where did the Y chromosome come from? It's it's not a doubt or anything, it's just where my brain went to. That, that's sure. that perfectly valid qu uh, question. Yeah, no, that my brain is, has gone there too. I was wondering about this literally decades ago. Um, obviously, now, if if God took all of Jesus's DNA from Mary, and if he um, had a normal uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes, then it wouldn't mean Jesus was a clone of Mary. Because, uh, it, for example, let's suppose in chromosome one, Mary had an A variant and a B variant. Well, Jesus might have an A variant and a B variant, or he might be double A or double B. 
So just because your all of your DNA comes from one parent, it doesn't mean you're a clone that has exactly the same genes. But there would still be the mystery of where did the Y chromosome come from? God could have modified uh, one of Mary's X's X chromosomes to become a Y chromosome. Um, and the Y chromosome is smaller than the X chromosome. So, you know, it would be kind of like truncating part of it, although part of it would just have to be rewritten. Um, so that's possible. It's also possible, though, that even though Jesus had no human father, that God didn't just come up with a Y chromosome. I mean, he could have created it ex nihilo out of nothing. But if he created a Y chromosome ex nihilo, that he could have created the other 23 chromosomes that Jesus would have had from a human father ex nihilo as well. And so it could be that Jesus, like most people, had only half of his genetic material come from his mother, and half of it was genetic material that God provided in a miraculous way. That's that's a that's one yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um I wonder if no. Uh it would be interesting to see a DNA test done on some of these uh, Eucharistic miracles. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that would be an interesting uh, exercise. So thank you all for your feedback. That's wonderful. Uh keep it coming. Jimmy, do we have some mysterious headlines this week? Yeah. So uh since we're talking about uh planet Vulcan this episode, I thought I would uh include a link for astronomers have found Vulcan. This is the sort of Star Trek, but still real world Vulcan that they have found orbiting uh, 40 Eridani A, which is uh, the location of the fictional planet Vulcan in uh, the Star Trek universe. And um, this real life equivalent we found actually seems to have some of the properties Mm -hmm. of the fictional planet Vulcan. So you can read about that, uh, have a link there to to sci-fi.com and their story on it. Also, Taylor from Facebook sends in a National Geographic article titled Mysterious Waves Rippled Around the Earth and Nobody Knows Why. And Mm. we're talking here about seismic waves that apparently did go around the Earth. They were uh, sighted like uh, at 11,000 mile distances from their apparent point of origin, uh, which was near the near or around the island of Mayotte, which is between the, the uh, eastern coast of Africa and the island of Madagascar. It's a small island. It's apparently, and it's this island has been having lots of earthquakes recently, and it's apparently moved like a couple of inches one direction and another inch in another direction really fast. Wow. Uh, and But recently we had these bizarre seismic waves that do not conform to ordinary earthquake waves that seem to originate here but went all over the planet. There are different proposed explanations for them. Some people have said it may have been like magma shifting around under the Earth's crust that caused them, but they're very strange waves. We don't know exactly what caused them at this point. And so check out that mysterious headline from National Geographic. My theory is that uh, the island of uh, Mayotte is a, a dormant kaiju waking up. Oh, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Unless you're in Madagascar. Unless you're in Madagascar, (laughs) that's right. Uh, Kaiju love to attack big islands. It's it's a thing. I don't know what it is for them. So that's great. Thank you again, uh, uh, Taylor, for that uh, that link. And and folks, if you see interesting stories you you think should be included in mysterious headlines, please post them or email them to to us. Uh, We'd love to include those as well. So um, that's it for for us on this topic. What do you think about uh, what Jimmy had to say about the Lost Planet Vulcan? 
if you have anything more to add or any of the interesting comments, let us know by going to sqpn.com slash mysterious or to the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Find the link to the show there and leave us a comment or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can find the relevant links to, uh, from our discussion, including Jimmy's further resources and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes on sqpn.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you so much, Dom. And just want to remind people to uh, go by sqpn.com slash give. And please be generous now that we're at the end of our uh, giving campaign. Uh, it's a great chance to get a tax write-off and uh, to finish out the season of Christmas in a spirit of generosity. So thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. And Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. This is Dom Bettinelli again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll help us keep producing the podcast you love. Thank you for your generosity. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give.